0: Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Oh, stories. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always that's everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast though, well I'm here to talk of the stories of films as the title somewhat suggests. So I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, behind the scenes stories, marketing, release all those little bits and bobs that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. I talk about two films in each episode of the podcast as a rule, they're films that tend to have a bit of a mainstream leaning to them i'm interested and invested in them to some degree as well i don't tend to pick films that i've got no time for not massively interested in snark i just think it's an achievement and a half to get a film made and this podcast really um, is designed to celebrate that that's a lot of preamble though so i'm just going to get down to business if that's all right i'm going to take you to 1997 i'm just going to play you a clip from the promotion of a very big uh, high profile sequel British family on a yacht cruise stumbled upon Site B. And now it's only a matter of time before this lost world is found and pillaged. Hopefully, we've kept this island quarantined and contained, but I'm in shock about all this. Wow. That's how it always starts, but then later there's running and screaming. That sounds very exciting. That's a clip from 1997's *The Lost World: colon, Jurassic Park*, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by David Kep and Michael Crichton, based on Crichton's novel. The cast, led by Jeff Goldblum, Julianne Moore, Pete Postlethwaite, Alice Howard, Richard Attenborough, and Vince Vaughan. You also get an early role in there for Richard Schiff of *West Wing* fame as well. And, of course, the film was the sequel to 1993's Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park was an enormous hit. You don't need me to tell you that. And immediately after Jurassic Park hit big, conversations were uh, were, were starting. Questions were being asked about, would there be a sequel? Well, inevitably, there was going to be a sequel, but not as quickly as many people had, had figured. Because after his success in 1993, with first of all, with Jurassic Park, the biggest film of the year, and then Schindler's List, the most... Most acclaimed film of the year, director Steven Spielberg needed a break. He'd made the two films back to back. He'd done well out of them uh, in, in different ways. And he he was planning to take a good year or so away from directing. Steven Spielberg's idea of putting his feet up doesn't quite equate to mine. Uh, For one, he and his wife had another child. Um, For two, he threw his energies and his finances, and he'd cleaned uh, at least nine figures, the story goes, off the back of Jurassic Park, into co forming Hollywood's first big new studio in in a long, long time, DreamWorks SKG, that he co formed with Jeffrey Katzenberg, formerly of Disney. David Geffen. And so his energies were going into that. DreamWorks was founded in 1994. Uh, It's huge fanfare. But realistically. it needed Spielberg to make some live action films for it. That Katzenberg with his Disney background. Was straight on to developing an animated Slater project for DreamWorks. Geffen was working on the music side. Spielberg. Well the hope was that he would turn his magic. To the film studio side of the business. But. As it turned out, first of all, I mean, he was taking that break and then when he decided to return to directing, to the surprise of many, um, he would go and make a film for another studio, that studio being Universal. Because by the time it was formally announced he was directing in 1996, so three years after after the original Jurassic Park had come out, DreamWorks hadn't made a film. And it turned out that Spielberg was going to be focusing his energies elsewhere. The pressure really was on DreamWorks to deliver. It was attracting lots of negative coverage in the trade press about get, getting all this investor money, the money from its co-founders, and not having an awful lot to show for it thus questions were asked about why is spielberg making a film for someone else and also there'd been a, a feeling that after an expectation really that after schindler's list spielberg would would be reluctant to go back to the kind of blockbuster entertainment from which he'd made his name there's also the factor that Spielberg had shown a reluctance to to direct sequels that the Indiana Jones films are, are the only ones really the, the only ones to that point that he'd directed follow-ups to himself but then he was believed to have harboured regrets over the way the Jaws movies had gone and the fact that people felt that he had something to do with Jaws 2 Jaws 3D and Jaws 4 The Revenge or Jaws The Revenge as it was known uh, you have to be very precise when it comes to the fourth jaws movie spielberg of course had nothing to do with the last three the making of the first jaws had been such an arduous production that he had no inclination at all to get back into the water but he 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 didn't like how those sequels had turned out it's unclear whether he actually watched them all but there, there was a little bit of discomfort about people assumed that spielberg was something to do with him there was also the fact that he wasn't as big a fan of Jurassic Park, the original film, as the rest of us. There is an excellent article in Premiere magazine, the US version of Premiere's May 1997 issue, that's taken some digging out but was really worth it. And he told Premiere at the time, I didn't think Jurassic Park was a perfect film and it wasn't so close to my heart that I needed to protect the integrity of a follow up by preventing anybody else from doing one. Um, he also admitted in that that the Jurassic Park wasn't in even in the top five of his own favorite movies and it comes in the context of the article in a conversation about why he didn't make a sequel to E.T. in spite of getting lots and lots of letters from people asking him to make a sequel to E.T. of course a a sequel was developed but he ultimately decided not to press ahead with it in the case of Jurassic though he was he, he was more open to the idea I mean it would make him very rich that that would help but I don't think that's fully Spielberg's driving force there was also the fact that after making Schindler's List when he he decided when he returned to directing he wanted something lighter to do and Jurassic Park 2 seemed logical it was still a surprise and the formal announcement that he would be directing the film came um, what summer of 1996, autumn of 1996, just before it's going to start filming. But it was one of those things that it was pretty well known to that point that he was going to be doing it. He was also conscious of his commitment to his new company, of course. And Spielberg had made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List back to back, and he decided he was going to go one step further for his next uh, his next bunch of movies that he was going to make Jurassic Park. Uh, Uh, Jurassic part two then two films straight away two films for his new company so he made Amistad and Saving Private Ryan and he was filming these within a calendar year of each other but Jurassic part two would come first now there was of course the, the the whole notion of well what story do you tell so let's go back a little bit Michael Crichton wrote the novel of the original Jurassic Park that Spielberg picked up and, with, with, along with screenwriter David Kep adapted it into the first film. It was Kep who did the screenplay for the first movie. And Crichton had hinted in 1994 that he had another Jurassic Park story in mind. Now, Crichton hadn't done sequels to his books to this point, but he was feeling the enthusiasm, the pressure, and perhaps he wanted a, a few quid as well, to, to revisit Isla Nubla, to, to revisit The Land of the diamond Dinosaurs that they created, and so he hinted in 1994 that he had an idea for the first time for another novel in mind, and then by a year later he'd pretty much written it, and it was clear that the team was going to come back together for the new film. That the conversations were going on with Spielberg, but also David Kep was back on board and interested as well. It's worth noting at this point as well that director Joe Johnston, who uh, I talked about when I covered the Rocketeer on this podcast, but of course the likes of Honey I Shrunk the kids and was also uh, a pivotal part of the first star wars film well he'd offered to direct the sequel um an offer that spielberg declined but joe johnston would get the job of directing jurassic park 3 that again i've covered on an earlier episode of this podcast now Crichton had been reluctant to write the sequel to to his book but then he came up with the idea of another island it sounds like something that's come up in a Hollywood scriptwriters' conference where lots of people sit with a whiteboard with executives and just say well how can we possibly justify this how can we get people back to the island well how about another island um that said there was some logic to what uh, to what Crichton was putting forward uh, it was just the fact that the other island had not been mentioned at all in the original book or in the original film nonetheless the idea of a site b would form the foundation for the book and it would also form the foundation for the screenplay and so david Kep would get involved and he and spielberg would bounce ideas around while crichton was writing the uh, was writing the book spielberg would come up with ideas for little scenes and little shots and they would go backwards and forwards but uh, on page 110 of this premiere article david Kep talks about uh, the pressure on, uh, of writing a, a jurassic park sequel and also the the kind of the, the feedback he was getting from uh, from people who'd enjoyed the first film and he said in writing jurassic park the first one i threw out a lot of detail about the characters because whenever they started talking about their personal lives you couldn't care less you wanted them to shut up and go stand on a hill where you can see the dinosaurs when we announced the sequel he said i got this packet of letters from an elementary school class somewhere outside san francisco and one of the kids wrote that we should add a stegosaurus and this and that but quote whatever you do please don't have a long boring bit at the beginning that has nothing to do with the island and kept reconciled this he said in other words the premise of these movies is so exciting that the usual cat and mouse game doesn't work the kid is only eight but he's right and i kept his letter on my desk and on my tombstone it will say my name the years i lived and then quote it took too long to get to the island and he had that very much in mind that that the, the and i'll come to it a little bit uh, in a minute as well um that they didn't have the luxury of the big preamble this time this wasn't going to be the novelty that the first film was i mean such was the impact of the first i remember uh bbc one here in the uk cleared a seven o'clock pr- uh, prime slot one evening for a documentary on spielberg and the dinosaurs it was effectively a half hour um dvd extra before dvd extra sort of thing but such was the enthusiasm for the film that was allowed to play in prime time with no pushback really whatsoever when they took uh delivery of Crichton's manuscript Kep would ultimately drop lots of the story from the eventual no- the, the eventual novel and Spielberg himself would say I couldn't find a lot of story narrative in the middle part talking about the book but then talking about Crichton he said his set it was excellent and he certainly put us on the right road. Um, what they also took from the book is the big sequence of the two trailers the two lab trailers um, that, that comes up in the middle of the film that was retained with the slowly cracking glass that was that wonderful sequence in the movie arguably one of the best sequences in the movie. Spielberg was also um, conscious that the underlying message of this one was going to be different that it wouldn't be about scientists being bad this time the scientists were fighting to save nature and if the first film was about the failure of technology the second film was going to be about the failure of people. Now, as the story goes, when Crichton finished his novel, he wasn't really consulted about the screenplay uh, initially to the new film. And there's a story that goes that he, he withheld his approval for certain merchandising rights until he was given a copy of the script. But... It was Crichton was uh, I mean, he'd worked with Spielberg on Twister as well the summer before. And so they had a working relationship. And and as again, as the story goes, he was fully versed with the idea that once you handed over the story to Steven Spielberg, Spielberg was going to go off and do his own movie. Kep then he in the end would write nine drafts of the screenplay before they got to a point where it was ready to go casting wise I mean bits of it were were quite straightforward although the decision was early on that Sam Neill and Laura Dern's characters wouldn't be returning as the uh, protagonists of this particular Jurassic Park story the first person who was said to be back was Richard Attenborough who's going to reprise the role of John Hammond and he confirmed at the end of 1994 that he was set to return for the movie and this was a long time before it was really actively pushing ahead in terms of other parts of the ensemble the the late brilliant Pete Postlethwaite who I I just think is a tremendous actor and very sadly missed um, like many people involved in this film actually and Postlethwaite was turning up in so many films at this time but what director could could you know could resist casting him Spielberg would say after working with him on his subsequent film Amistad that he's one of the best actors he'd ever worked with and what drew him to the jurassic park sequel was his performance apostle best supporting actor nominated performance in the extraordinary in the name of the father a year or two before um, Art Malik um, was offered a role in the film as well. Uh, his profile had been boosted by James Cameron's True Lies. Again, I've covered that before. But Malik would turn that role down, uh, the role in Jurassic Park 2 down. He would also turn down another production Spielberg was involved with, The Mask of Zorro. Yeah, I've talked about that on any previous podcast too. Um, because he, he didn't really want to do the same old roles just because he'd had a huge high-profile hit with True Lies. Um, For Vince Vaughan, he came to the production after the success of Swingers. It was that film that put him on Spielberg's radar. In the case of Julianne Moore, well, she'd come to prominence with a supporting role in 1993's The Fugitive. And this was going to be the core cast of the movie. The project was on. It was due. It was set for release in uh, the summer of 1997, and filming would begin on the movie known as The Lost World: Colon Jurassic Park on September the 5th, 1996. Uh, quite a lot of studio-based work for this one, done in Los Angeles, with location work in New Zealand as well. And one of the interesting things about the production is uh, screenwriter David Kep was was quite present on the set of it, and I talked about Kep and Steven Spielberg when I discussed War of the Worlds a couple of episodes back. But in this case, Kep was on the set for. To fix any dialogue glitches and bits and bobs that needed uh, surgery there and then, because there was a sequence uh, near the start that was particularly causing Steven Spielberg worries when he when he came to shoot it, and it's the setup of the movie basically. It's the scene in the film where Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm is being persuaded to return to the the area with the dinosaurs in a chat with Richard Attenborough's John Hammond. And, and going back to that premiere set report, it talks there about Spielberg's concerns over the sequence it, it, the, the sequence as he came to shoot it, that this was a five-and-a-half-page scene early in the movie, which explains the whole existence of another island, and that, that, that Spielberg argued that whilst the exposition at the start of the first film, because if, if you remember the first Jurassic Park, it's 45 minutes of education, really, before you get to the island, and in that one, Spielberg, Spielberg says that, that was, quote, compelling stuff, unquote. The idea of explaining genetics and chaos theory and paleontology and how he got to play around with animation and just have some fun with the opening of that movie. But in the case of the sequel here, it was justifying. And this is something that every Jurassic Park film has re- wrestled with to some degree, uh, why on earth anyone would go to the island? Why would you go back after you have gone through what you went through in the first film, in the case of Ian Malcolm? And as Spielberg would say, quote, it's just a lot more construction than I'm used to as a storyteller. Um, and, and Kep would reveal in the same article that it was Goldblum who came up with the idea, ultimately, as to why Malcolm would go back to the to the island, or at least to Site B, and it was to do with his girlfriend in the film, Sarah Harding, played by. By Julianne Moore. But you got even then there was a sense that Spielberg was a little bit frustrated. There was just something about the movie that, that clearly was just like causing him a little bit of a test. On the set of Jurassic Park 2 as well of course. Spielberg was having to juggle his DreamWorks business. There's a book I've quoted it before by Nicole Laporte called uh, The Men Who Would Be King. Which charts the formation and the early years of DreamWorks and in that book for instance there's a story of the writer adam rifkin being brought to the set of the second jurassic park film for a conversation about possibly reviving a a project by the name of small soldiers that was ultimately done by dreamworks with joe dante directing and it talks about how spielberg would go from directing the film uh then on the set he was in a meeting about a separate dreamworks project and how his head was able to make that switch pretty much Instantly, but there was a whole bunch of DreamWorks work that needed to be done, and there was Spielberg off shooting a movie for another company. And the DreamWorks work was seeping in, and there there was kind of cross pollination between the two. Uh, In fact, the the story goes in the book, and the book has been disputed by some of the people that it talks about. But nonetheless, it talks about how some DreamWorks projects were delayed as a consequence of uh, there just not being enough hours in Spielberg's day while he was off making the movie there was also the technological aspect of making a jurassic park film that to a degree and very much in its favor technology had held the first jurassic park movie a little bit hostage that there were limits to what they could do with the practical and the effects and and the visual effects work that was involved in that movie um so for instance I'm, i'm spielberg ended up filming around that but but there aren't actually, if you go back to the original Jurassic Park, that many scenes with dinosaurs in, and Spielberg pulled out the full box of tricks that he had at his disposal, but he was restricted in just how much time they could afford, um, budget-wise, to have dinosaurs rampaging over the screen, he'd show them in bits, and we would show trees rustling, and things like that, all the little bits and bobs that, that he's really expert at, I mean, it goes back, very much to the way he directed Jaws as well. But with Jurassic Part 2, things had moved on and more was possible. The technology had come on a few years. Various other films had been pushing it forward as well. And in 95, Spielberg, um, again, as I've discussed before, was involved with Twister. And that was a film that had over 300 effects shots and showed really what could be done with uh, with effects work at that point. There was instantly the option then with the next with, with the new jurassic park film to go more cg driven but that was something that spielberg was kind of pushing against a little bit that he wanted to keep that mixture in there um and thus stan winston was hired again to oversee the model constructions and one of the key selling points of the second jurassic park film is there now two uh, t-rexes in there and this was uh, these were realized in part through the creation of two puppets uh, robotic puppets at a cost of a, a reportedly a million dollars each they were computer assisted puppets their heads were weighing a thousand pounds apiece. they packed two G's of wallops as the premiere article that reported on them um, but also the technology driving the models was more sophisticated to the point there was more they could do with them the sequence in the film where a T-Rex bites through a windscreen they were able to achieve a lot of that with model work whereas in the previous film they would had to have done cutaways and bits and bobs and worked around it There were limits to those models, they were gigantic, they could take up to two days simply to turn around. But the whole ethos of the film was that if you're seeing a close-up of a dinosaur, that was going to be a model. If you're seeing long shots, that was going to be CG. And Spielberg set to the team at Industrial Light and Magic, ILM, the effects team on the movie, um, that where they were using the CG, he wanted to make sure the dinosaurs could integrate with the environment a lot more than they were able to do in the first film. The irony of all of this was that the cost of doing the CG in uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park was going down compared to the first film. But the cost of the model work was going up. The models were getting more intricate and the robotics behind those T-Rex models, for instance, required a full air conditioned room just for the control computers that, that were being used to to drive them that said Spielberg threw some numbers around as well he said it was still when it came to CG costing $80,000 for eight seconds of a dinosaur just walking around if the dinosaur's in a puddle that's $100,000 if there are other dinosaurs in the background well the price is up to $150,000 and but the important thing was that Spielberg once again was frugal that he was pushing back against the idea that actors should be paid 20-25 million dollars salary for a film that uh, every film had to have a nine-figure budget I mean infamously he's he was at a point in his career where he was able to not take up front salary and would take his uh, takings of a movie based on the back end performance of it deals that made him incredibly rich man. Um, He mused that Universal would have given him around 130 million dollars to make uh, the Jurassic Park sequel had he asked for it. But actually the budget for this one was 73 million dollars. That's only a few million more than the first film cost. But from Universal's point of view Spielberg's back-end deal was more generous as well he was said to be taking about 17.5% of the first dollar gross of the movie so that's a fair slice that would have come out of Universal's pocket anyway so it probably did cost them roughly around that anyway nonetheless Spielberg was intent that this film was going to be delivered to a price and it was going to be delivered to a deadline He talked about how there were 59 CG shots in the original film, but he capped uh, the number in the sequel at 75 uh, as part of this pushback against bloated budgets and just using tools because they happen to be available but what was also interesting during the making of the movie was it became apparent that spielberg wasn't particularly i, I don't know it, it wasn't particularly fully uh, fully enjoying the process if anything even in the promotional articles that were coming out around the time of the film's release he basically admitted that he'd started to get bored towards the end of making it um there's a sequence uh, again I, I come back to this article and um he he's there's a whole passage in this this was to promote the film um he said i'll tell you how schindler's list changed me as a filmmaker how i beat myself up in the making of the lost world he said i found myself in the middle of the sequel to jurassic park growing more and more impatient with myself with respect to the kinds of films i really like to make and he would go further a few years later where he would he would talk about he, he basically his disenchantment with it that he just said it may be wistful about doing a talking picture because sometimes i got the feeling i was just making this big silent raw movie and i found myself saying is that all it is that there's not enough for me spielberg would also talk in hindsight um about regrets that the characters in the film would know that they were going off to an island full of dinosaurs Um, and he also said when he talked about sequels to his films in in similar interviews said my aren't as good as my originals because I go into every sequel I've made and I'm too confident. Filming wrapped um, as you uh, Spielberg Productions filming wrapped ahead of schedule with this one on December the 11th 1996 the The principal photography was complete and then it was the build up to the release of the movie Universal spent nine figures just on the marketing campaign for the film set a premiere of May the 19th 1997 with a full US release of May the 23rd 1997 and this was the big must see film of the year Separate uh dreamworks was struggling to get a film in cinemas the peacemaker would come out but but wouldn't hit the uh, lucrative summer market nor would it break through and in fact that summer whilst dreamworks was struggling spielberg had two big hit movies in cinemas he had the jurassic Park sequel and also he'd lent his name to the men in black film the first men in black film that was being done at sony nonetheless Jurassic Part 2 for all of Spielberg's frustrations with it it got generally okay reviews they were more middling than the first film certainly but the whole novelty factor was gone and also the ending of the film came in for some criticism this was said to be an ending that Spielberg himself conceived just weeks before filming of the movie was set set to be complete it was an idea it's the San Diego sequence in the film I don't want to spoil it if you've not seen it but it was an idea that originally was in his mind for Jurassic Part 3 and he just decided he wanted to do it for this film. There was some speculation about that being some kind of swipe at the Godzilla movie that was in development, but it, it, it just seemed he wanted to fast track the idea. The film opened to what 72 million in the US, it broke the record for a single day gross But crucially, its box office would fall short of the first movie. That was the first movie grossed what around 900 million worldwide, this one would grow 618 million worldwide, and Spielberg also would realize that that was really it in terms of directing jurassic park films for him that he said he 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 worked it out while he was filming the lost world and you know production of it wrapped in december and he was off in february shooting amistad and once again remotely supervising the edit of a jurassic park movie whilst he was on to the film that he seemed a bit more invested in as such when it came to the third movie it would take some time It take another four years before it come along and spielberg would executive produce and he has stayed involved he's not repeated the jaws mistake as he saw it but joe johnston would do the third and then of course the, we've now got the jurassic world films um uh, juan antonio bayona did uh, the, the, the the fallen kingdom one and colin is doing jurassic world and jurassic world dominion spielberg is involved but i just think perhaps he lost just a little bit of his love for the franchise on the second movie. Which brings me to the halfway point of this episode of Film Stories. Just a couple of bits and bobs. Um, I am at point this episode is going out on the verge of launching uh, a Kickstarter appeal for to raise funds to keep my magazines uh, live and kicking. That's Film Stories Magazine and Film Stories Junior Magazine, the latter being for under-15s. You can find out all about that on the Film Stories website at filmstories.co.uk. I am hugely appreciative as a fully independent pro- uh, publisher and producer of the support I get from from you all uh, I genuinely couldn't do it without it I don't have a company behind me it is me in a room with a beaten up laptop doing my best and, and I, I, it's you and word of mouth that's got me this far thus if you like this podcast it is gold dust to me if you would subscribe to it and also ideally leave a hugely positive review at your podcast home at choice I, I can't thank you enough for the loads of you who have been doing that it's making such a difference I, I don't understand algorithms but whatever you're doing is helping push me up them So thank you for that. But that's enough of me trying to sell myself. Um, I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode. We're moving forward to 2010 this time. Let me play you a snippet from the promo and I'll pick up the story the other side of this. What's your name? My name is Vasily Orlov. Nothing. He doesn't exist. Today, a Russian agent will travel to New York City to kill the president. This agent is KA-12. The KA program is a myth. Scan says he's truthful. This guy's selling smoke. Wrap it up, Ev. Don't you want to know the name? You're good. You can tell the rest of your story to one of my colleagues. The name of the agent is Evelyn Salt. My name is Evelyn Salt. Then you are a Russian spy. Well, blimey, that all sounds exciting, doesn't it? That is uh, a part of the promo for 2010 Salt, directed by Philip Noyce, uh, written by Kurt Vimmer, um, with the cast led by Angelina Jolie, Liev Schreiber, uh, Chiwetel Edger for uh, in the ensemble as well. And this one, well, it went through quite a transformation during its its gestation period. That the project originated with Kurt Vimmer, and by 2002, he was about to release his second film as director. Into cinemas that would be Equilibrium. I quite like Equilibrium, actually. Um, he'd also worked on the screenplays of films like The Thomas Crown Affair and of Sphere, and he would go on to do Ultraviolet, which he'd also direct. Uh, Street Kings, Law Abiding Citizen. He would also uh, be work on the screenplay for the Total Recall and Point Break remakes as well. But at the point he was promoting Equilibrium in 2002, he did an online web uh, an online chat with the website Chud and he said there. I have several scripts he was asked what he's up to next he said I have several scripts foremost of which is one called the far reaching philosophy of Edwin A Salt and he described the film as kind of a high-action spy thriller in the tone of Born Identity, and a script called, And he also said at that point he's working on a script called Valkyrie, unrelated to the Tom Cruise film that I'm going to talk about shortly, and that was a sci-fi vampire film, kind of a female blade, he described it as, only the hero is a complete vampire, pure, pure comic book. Now, he'd written uh, Edwin A. Salt as the working title for the film was going, I think he should have called him Eric, I, I might go with Eric Salt going forward, so he, he wrote, that script on spec and again we have talked about this a few times in the podcast when a writer writes something on spec it's not been commissioned they're not being paid for it and the idea is once they've written the script they take it out to market try and sell it and you get a slightly higher price ideally just by the fact that the studio's not had to do all the development work to get to that point but as you can probably tell by the title of eric salt the the lead character the protagonist in this was written as male and it got some studio interest because at this point the Bourne identity um, was changing things that the, the the first Bourne movie was a real shot in the shot in the arm and a reboot at the same time for the kind of spy thriller I talked about Die Another Day in last week's podcast and the Bourne films would have a huge impact on where the James Bond movies were going I'm coming to James Bond in this story as well um, and so there was interest in the project that that studios wanted to be in bed with eric salt so to speak columbia in particular was interested and it would ultimately buy the project in january of 2007 and at that point uh, directors were fairly quickly sought to work on the film uh, the first known director who was attached to direct salt um, was terry george irish director who had helmed some mother's son but it, most recently recently at that point, had made the extraordinary Hotel Rwanda. Uh, he'd also worked on the screenplay for things like In the Name of the Father and The Boxer for Jim Sheridan. Um, but from what I can tell, he didn't appear, Terry George didn't appear to be on the film for very long. Another name that was linked at that point too was Michael Mann. Um, but Michael Mann would ultimately, as the story goes, choose to make the film Public Enemies instead of going ahead and doing the Salt movie. Still, a few months after Columbia had bought the project, Tom Cruise was being wooed for it. So we're, we're coming to what the middle of two thousand and seven, and this is where Tom Cruise's name enters the, enters the Salt story. Now at this point, Tom Cruise had done a deal with United Artists with he and his production partner Paula Wagner, um, whereby this was a movie star who was generating movies for a studio in the in the original United Artists tradition, and so he was working on a film called Line for Lamb at that point but he was also making valkyrie with brian singer and valkyrie went through numerous delays once it was completed um cruise was interested in doing salt so. mission impossible 3 had been a bit of a a, a, a bit bumpy it had been uh the, the reception to it certainly at the box office hadn't been as high as it, it expected um and so he was on the lookout for something but he, he was interested but crucially as the story would would, would, would goes on he didn't sign on the dotted line but he stayed close to him michael manthus didn't take the film on next in line was peter berg and peter berg had done uh, i mean he uh, it sprung to attention with friday night lights And by 2007, well, he just made The Kingdom, which had been well received. He would go on to do Hancock straight after that. He'd done very bad things, Christian Slater movie. I don't know if many of you remember that. Um, He would, uh, I mean, Peter Berg would go on and do things like Mile 22, Patriots Day, Deepwater Horizon, Lone Survivor. But at this point, he, uh, after completing The Kingdom, and The Kingdom had gone down well. He was the person who was going to bring Eric Salt to the screen. So Cruise was still on board at this point. Cruz, of course, as he does with all of his projects, had director approval. Um, and it, with 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 the cycle of directors coming through, Kurt Vimmer each time would be would stay on board the project. That he would be revising and working the screenplay, depending who was who was set to direct it at that point. Uh, producer Lorenzo De Bonaventura also came aboard um, around this time. I've not been able to pinpoint exactly when he joined the project, but he was pushing the uh, film forward for Sony. Peter Berg, though, well, he would drop out fairly shortly after his name was first mentioned. So from what I can tell, by the start of 2008, Berg was not, was not involved in the film anymore. Now, separately, director Philip Noyce, well, he'd had a really busy, high-profile Hollywood 1990s that the Australian director, um, he sprung to uh, Hollywood prominence off the back of Dead Calm. But in the 90s, he directed, what, Patriot Games, Sliver, The Saint, The Bone Collector, uh, Clear and Present Danger. He was going to do a sequel to The Saint, had the first one gone down better as well. But in the first decade of the 2000s, he'd gone back and pivoted to doing Smaller, independent films he I, I, just films without the massive profile of the blockbusters that he'd been juggling so he did The Quiet American which I really like and he did Rabbit Proof Fence which is described in interviews as the film he's proudest of not least because actually getting it made in the first place was an achievement and a half it's a terrific film Rabbit Proof Fence but he also revealed uh, he, he would ultimately reveal that he'd first chatted to Sony about doing Salt in 2006 uh, so this was this was a roundabout when Terry George. George was being talked to as well. However, it wouldn't be until the middle of 2008 that he was firmly said to be on the radar for the movie again, as Columbia was pushing to find a director for the feature. Cruise, again, still interested. And uh, uh, he was interested as much because he and Philip Noyce had been working on a potential other project, that they were going to make a film called The 28th Amendment at Warner Brothers that ultimately didn't get made. And in terms of Cruise and Noyce's own interest, they were more interested in Eric Salt, as it would happen. That's the one they got more interested in. And that's the one ultimately they they were looking to press ahead and do. Now, Noyce would talk to the website Moviehole uh, about why he went back to do a big Hollywood movie after so much time away from them. And he said, Having the resources that a summer studio release gives you is pretty irresistible, particularly if you spent the last 10 years, as I have, cutting every corner and then some to get your film up on the screen. More significantly than that, Noyce said, the Hollywood marketing machine is unrivaled for the three films I've made in the last 10 years I had to actually help distributors and exhibitors which in some cases meant going from cinema to cinema trying to help them to find audiences it's a much better use of your energy if the Hollywood marketing machine finds the audience noise was on board with salt this finally looked like it was happening and a table read was actually organized to test Kurt Vimmer's script out as well that the latest revision to the script um, actors were brought in to do that who wouldn't always ultimately appear in the movie and apparently Samuel L Jackson was one of the people at the table read who agreed to take on one of the parts just to help them out however the dance between uh Cruz and Eric Saltz would continue for a few months yet before ultimately Tom Cruise would say no to the film that the story well, the explanation that was doing the rounds was that he felt that the character of Eric Salt was far too close to the character of Ethan Hunt that he was playing in the Mission Impossible films and he wanted to make another Mission Impossible movie not immediately so because what the, the film he would opt to pursue instead would be uh, the movie Night and Day which he co-starred with Cameron Diaz directed by James Mangold who I'm coming to in a future podcast with one or two of his films um, but as a consequence when he left when Cruise left the film that was still known as Edwin A. Salt at that point the project was in limbo for a couple of weeks now sony and angelina jolie uh, meanwhile were having conversations that they uh that, that angelina jolie um had had a meeting with amy pascal who was then the studio head of sony pictures and sony pictures at this point by the time they had their conversation had just uh, released casino royale um it was the first bond film that it had the rights to release and it was starting to work on the second the film that would become skyfall and so pascal and Jolie. Jolie were having a conversation and that but at that meeting Jolie joked that she wanted to be James Bond and that that lodged in Pascal's head and she thought there was something there and so when Tom Cruise left the project it was Pascal who mentioned the idea of Angelina Jolie taking on the lead role Um, and the script was duly sent to her to see what she thought now Philip Noyce would tell the website Dark Horizons terrific website that that in September of 2008 Kurt Vimmer, myself that's Philip Noyce not me and and producer Lorenzo de Bonaventura went to the south of France to visit Angelina at a home there where she lives with her kids and Brad that's Brad Pitt her then husband and that they had three or four days of discussing how the film would need to change, not least by the fact that Eric Salt was now becoming Evelyn Salt. Um, and another screenwriter was brought in to help with that process, Brian Helgeland, who wrote *L.A.*, uh, adapted LA Confidential, directed Payback, amongst others. And he was brought in to make revisions to the script based on the conversation that took place in that meeting in the south of France between Jolie, Wimmer, Noyce um, and de Bonaventura. Um Jason Bourne was a big influence on the conversation they're having and uh, picking up certain touch points from that franchise. But when it became clear Jolie was going to do this film, the script was obviously rewritten. But it was very—it was—it wasn't a case of doing a find and replace on a word document and swapping Eric out for Evelyn because Salt was now Evelyn Salt. And De Bonaventura would tell—and ta- this is in the press materials that were distributed when the film was out—to Bonaventura would say we began to question the dynamic of every scene. If we didn't simply question uh, whether we, we, he said we didn't simply question whether a woman would make all the same choices but also how the other characters would act or react differently and the film was retooled uh, probably more than it was given credit for as a consequence of the d- the decision to make the protagonist in the movie female the uh, to give an example of one way that was retooled is actually the film's ending would change as a consequence of it the finale of the original movie would have seen eric salt saving his wife and son but jolie pushed back against that she said that evelyn wouldn't ne- neglect the child in the same way that eric had done and thus the ending was changed now the one thing that stayed as a core right from vimmer's first script uh, back at the start of the 2000s was the idea as you heard in the clip of an undercover cia operative accused of being a mole that much was a constant but the rest of it was changing quite a lot however by the start of 2009 it was clear that this movie was finally going to go ahead Um, and the cast was coming together in fact two two key pieces of casting were announced within days of each other Lee Schreiber joining the film days ahead of Chiwetel Ejiofor and Ejiofor was picked off the back of his role in uh, Stephen Frears's movie Dirty Pretty Things by March 2019 then the shoot was underway That filming would run from March of that year through to June. Now, Noyce from the off was very keen to ground his film in a lot in reality. He researched, and he's known for doing an awful lot of research before he takes film on. This film was no exception. And he knew also from the off that this was going to be a movie that was going to take a lot of piecing together in the edit room by the nature of how many flashbacks were woven into the narrative. Noise's drive to keep it grounded was—I mean—it was clear very early on because the first scenes shot as part of the production were on location in Washington DC. And usually, when you get a big action film uh, uh, or a spy thriller, I in Washington DC, the exteriors of the White House and and of government buildings and the legislature of the US. But Noise didn't want that. And a major escape action sequence—I'm going very spoiler light here—was shot. Was one of the first sequences to be shot, and actually. They picked a location a block or two down from the White House just to give a different look of Washington. And so they filmed in and around the American Capitol for a week before the production then moved to New York City, which is where it would spend the bulk of its time on location. Angelina Jolie I think she'd given birth to twins not not long before I mean she she got herself into she she trained uh, heavily for this film uh, because she wanted to perform as many of the stunts as she possibly could and that's duly what she did an awful lot of the stunt work you see in the final cut of Salt is Angelina Jolie at work it's a really strong leading performance I think. But when filming wrapped up in June of 2009, well, producer Lorenzo de Bonaventura was one of those who voiced problems that he wanted changes made to the film because he felt that there were bits that weren't quite working. And this goes to the fact that this was going to be a jigsaw puzzle of an edit to fit together. And so there was an article in Variety that talked about um, that talks about the reshoots, and it, it just said, uh, it, it talked about how Sony works with, worked with various writers that it kept on... Uh, kept on quote speed dial for post-production work when a film needed some emergency surgery and that happened to be the case with Salt and in that case uh, Stephen Zalian who'd won an Oscar for Schindler's List he was brought in to do uh, to write material for reshoots in the post-production period of Salt and those those reshoots were duly shot particularly it it was quote the, the quote in the Variety article said he did the Hail Mary at the end that's how one insider described the work that he did the movie's reshoots were then done at the end of 2009 and sony set a high summer release date for salt that it was going to come out and july the 23rd 2010 it was going to get its wide release uh, in america after um, a, an earlier premiere in hollywood and the film i mean ultimately it cost 110 million to make but unusually here the, the three different cuts of the movie were produced and three different cuts of the movie were available to people within a year of it coming out the shortest being the theatrical cut uh, a film that again going spoiler light leaves us with a cliffhanger of an ending but it's worth noting that noise also did a, a darker director's cut um, which leaves a different cliffhanger of an ending that it's slightly longer there's also an extended cut that's i think it's a minute longer than the theatrical cut that rejigs the order a little bit it's probably the tamest of the three cuts actually but unusually the decision was made to put all three of those on the disc release of the film you could pretty much choose what ending you wanted that said the one they chose to release well that didn't do too badly at all the film was a hit that the box office expectations were said to be in the 30 million dollar mark for its opening weekend in the states, and ultimately brought in 36 million to second- to inception at the box office that i think was in its second week of release that week and in all salt would gross 118 million in the u.s Uh, by the time you threw in international takings as well the overall box office of the movie just came in shy at 300 million dollars and then it would go on to be a hit on dvd and blu-ray as well and that was plenty enough to get sequel talk going and sequel talk didn't take long to come along because the box office the original born movie remember wasn't earth shattering it was when it was its performance on home formats that really ignited the commercial potential of that particular franchise now in this case Angelina Jolie was interested in doing Assault 2 Lorenzo de Bonaventura was interested in Assault 2 Philip Noyce was interested in Assault 2 and Kurt Vimmer was hired to write Assault 2 now it's worth noting that Jolie was juggling two possible sequels at this point because there was also talk bizarrely of a, a sequel to Wanted that she would star in and scripts were being done for that but that ultimately didn't interest um, nonetheless um, vimmer was hired and uh, he put together a script for salt Two, i believe in 2011 then along in 2012 that came the news report that becky johnston was now hired to write a screenplay for the salt sequel that story broke at the end of 2012 and for the next couple of years the story just bumbled on that it was kind of assumed there would be a salt 2 but where was it well the answer was it wasn't it wasn't coming because angelina Jolie lee was kind of turning down the script she didn't find a screenplay she was particularly happy with and eventually this is just one of those projects where that, that ran out of steam and ran out of time that there was talk at one point of a tv series of salt uh, that was in and around 2016 and some work was done on that but again that didn't take off either and so and and it wasn't the original plan that we've just been left with this one single salt movie that that was a hit that ends on a cliffhanger that you expect to be resolved in the next film and yet, the next film never really—it was never forthcoming. Um, the film continues to be a good catalog performer for Sony as well. It's released it on the 4K disc format for a start, and there aren't that many films that it's—it's it's felt uh, th- that it wanted to do with that. Nonetheless, as far as what happened uh, to Evelyn, uh, Evelyn Salt uh, at the end of the movie, what happened immediately? Well, you kind of, for the time being, just have to make that up yourself. I'm afraid which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories thank you as always for your ears and for your time you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew you can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod we're on YouTube with a whole host of video exclusive stuff there at youtube.com slash film stories Facebook yep we're there facebook.com slash film stories online and then there's our website where you can find out all about our magazines you can get a day every weekday it's updated with new stories and more features and that's at www filmstories.co.uk. it's been getting a lot of traffic lately thank you so much for supporting it. but then as always i think i've waffled a bit too much so i'm going to leave you in peace i'm going to thank you for listening thank you for your support and as always the most important thing is you all take care of yourselves and stay safe i'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories bye bye